Today we're reading from John chapter 10 verses 1 to 21. It will appear behind me if you've got a Bible on you or a Bible in your phone. Why don't you read with me today as we read. So that's John chapter 10 verses 1 to 21. Let's read God's word together. Very truly I tell you Pharisees, anyone who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate but climbs in by some other way is a thief and a robber. The one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him, and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he's brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them, and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. But they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. Jesus used this figure of speech, but the Pharisees did not understand what he was telling them. Therefore, Jesus said again, very truly, I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who have come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep have not listened to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hard hand is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and he runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. And the man runs away because he's just a hard hand and he cares nothing for the sheep. I'm the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me just as the father knows me and I know the father. And I lay my life down for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice and there will be one flock and there'll be one shepherd. The reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I receive from my father. The Jews who heard these words were again divided. Many of them said, he is demon-possessed and raving mad. Why listen to him? But others said, these are not the sayings of a man possessed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? And we thank God today for his word as it still speaks to us. Over the Easter period, uh, Joy and I and Elle, we headed to London uh, to spend some time with family. We were really looking forward to it, right? I mean, a week in London is never a bad thing. There's always tons of good stuff to do. The weather was amazing, all of that sort of stuff. But on top of that, most of Joy's family actually live in London. So London meant, oh great, we got to do family time. And we had a new niece uh, on that side of the family. So it was all very exciting. Elle, however, my daughter Elle, that little screaming bundle of, of anger that just went out of the room, right? Elle, however was incredibly excited about something else altogether. And this, the bottom line was that Dan and Heidi, my, my brother and sister-in-law that we were staying with, they own rabbits, right? Now, as far as I'm concerned, a rabbit is essentially fox food, right? I don't like rabbits. They're just big rats. I don't get it. I never did get it. But, you know, Joy loves rabbits. It's not for me. Elle was incredibly excited. On top of that, she's just been watching Peter Rabbit, and this rabbit happened to be called Mopsy, right? So this was like a big deal. She was going to hang out with Mopsy for a week, right? So what happened every day was I, I did breakfast with Elle. We would get up in the morning. She's usually up pretty early. We would go downstairs. It would be just her and I. And the thing about this particular rabbit was they own other rabbits, but this one they'd only had for a little while, and apparently 
you can't just chuck a rabbit in with other rabbits. You have to like let them get acclimatized and kind of slowly kind of bring them in touch with the other rabbits and then they can all live in one hutch. So Mopsy was living in the house, right? So every morning was like breakfast and we'd be eating breakfast and, and Elle would be like staring at the rabbit. And you're like trying to feed her a Weetabix and she's staring at the rabbit. And then eventually she'd start, Daddy. I, I just play with Mopsy just a wee minute, right? And it would start like this until eventually you'd say, right, okay, we'll get Mopsy out of the hutch. That's great, okay? Elle is now chasing Mopsy around the kitchen. That's all going really well, except for one small issue with that. At some point, we've got to get the rabbit back into the hutch, right? And so there I am, a grown man, like running around the kitchen like this. After this tiny, stupid little black rabbit that I cannot catch, right? And it's now like under the sideboard. And I'm like, how do you get a rabbit out from under the sideboard? I'm like with my foot in, like trying to like rake the thing out again. It's not going very well. And I'm thinking this thing knows that I hate it. So it's going to bite me. It's not going to get anywhere near it, right? So this is going on and on and on. And I'm getting more and more frustrated by this rabbit, okay? A grown man, I cannot catch a rabbit. This is going on and on. My 10-year-old nephew comes down the stairs. He's like bleary-eyed. And he like walks into the kitchen, sees me making a complete fool of myself. And all he does is he walks in and he just sits down and he spreads his legs out. And the rabbit runs between his legs and then he puts his legs against the wall. And he's caught the rabbit. And he just picks it up and he puts it in the hutch. It was at this point in my life I realized that shepherd was never going to be a particularly good job idea for me, right? While I, while I was telling Joy about this illustration during the week and she was like, Dave, you are a shepherd, and you just told everyone you're really rubbish at it, right? So this, I was like, thanks for that, Joy. Really, really, you know, thank you for that. Really appreciate it, right? But this term, shepherd, right? Shepherd is one that we hear a lot in the Bible. It appears dozens of times throughout the whole Bible. The first reference is in Genesis 4. The last one is in Revelation 12. It's one of those strong biblical images. In the Old Testament, very often God is described as a shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, for example, is one of the more famous verses that you might have heard. And lots of characters from Abraham to Moses to David, they were all described as shepherds throughout the Bible. And today, and probably most famously, it's Jesus who's going by that title. Perhaps it's not surprising, given the prevalence of shepherding in the culture at that time, right? To be a shepherd was a common thing in Judea and in the land that, that Jesus would have been in when he was speaking right now. He would have been in land that was kind of set up for livestock and all of that. It was pretty rocky. It was inconsistent. It wasn't very good agricultural land. So people didn't do crops and all that sort of stuff where Jesus was speaking at this time. But land that is rocky and inconsistent, what do you find there? Sheep, don't you? So it's good land for raising sheep. The shepherd would be a regular everyday sight for people. It's a common job. On every hill, there would be shepherds. This is what one biblical scholar said. This is what George Adam Smith writes. On some high moor across which at night the hyenas howl when you meet him, sleepless, farsighted, weather-beaten, armed, leaning on his staff and looking out over his scattered sheep, every one of them on his heart. You understand why the shepherd of Judea sprang to the front of people's history, why they gave his name to the king. This is one of the reasons why, for example, the David story was such a kind of storied thing in the nation Israel. Somebody that literally went from shepherd in the field to shepherd of a nation, right? That's like a really, that's all the imagery lined up there in one go. God's people long for the sort of king with the characteristics that a shepherd had. Constant attention, fearless courage, and patient love. 
That's what they thought of. That's what they thought of when they thought of a king. That's what a king looked like to them. I know that might not make much sense to us now when you think about a king, because normally when you think about him, it's like 316 layers of security, distant in some grand place, behind some table, signing off kind of documents that have calligraphy on them. You know, that sort of thing. That's what you imagine a king or a queen does, but not in this world. That's not what they imagined. They imagined the sort of king who got involved. They imagined the sort of king who cared, the sort that we're all looking for, aren't we? The temptation whenever you come to the Bible is always to try and parallel biblical imagery to things that are similarly commonplace today, right? So the temptation is to come at this today and go, when I say the good shepherd, I'm kind of thinking along the lines of the good lollipop man or the good accountant, right? But it doesn't work, okay? To try and parallel something with shepherd for what it would have meant for them today, to do that is to lose all the power of the imagery. You just got to go with it whenever we talk about a shepherd. I'm talking about someone who exhibits constant attention fearless courage and patient love that's what we're talking about here so Jesus gets talking about shepherding okay because all of what happens just before in chapter 9 what you have to remember is that chapter breaks happen later but the original document which would have kind of told the story of what's going on here it didn't have a chapter 9 chapter 10 it was all one thing and chapter 9 is one of those chapters that you lots of people would have heard about before it's where Jesus heals a man born blind right that story so he comes out of the temple and meets the man and, and on it goes and eventually he heals the man of blindness okay incredible you would think the Pharisees don't think so they start an argument about it. What have you done here? It's the Sabbath. You shouldn't be healing on the Sabbath. And, and it goes on and on and on and on. And eventually it gets on to the topic of spiritual blindness. And at its heart, the Pharisees are demanding to know, is Jesus from God or not? Who are you? Is he a prophet or not? Is he the Messiah or not? Essentially, chapter 9 ends with them asking the question, who are you? Right? You just healed a man from blindness. Who are you? And so Jesus responds, and chapter 10 is the response, and the answer is this, it's shepherd. Actually, I think this all the time whenever I regrettably end up tuning into the Nolan show or something like that, that all that the world seems to want to do is draw us into this confrontational thing, especially with Christians and non-Christians and different kind of worldviews and cultures. It like sets everything up as opposing all of the time so that we just have a blooming good argument and his ratings go through the roof, right? Because that's what people want to see. And yet Jesus doesn't do that, does he? They ask him, who is he? Who are you? You just healed somebody. Are you the Messiah or not, right? The thing to do would be to go, yes, I am the Messiah, right? That's what we would do. But that's not what Jesus does. He does it all the time. He has a different narrative, doesn't he? It's like he comes in from the side with something else altogether. So they ask him, who are you? And Jesus says, I'm the shepherd. This passage is known as the good shepherd, but actually he doesn't go to good shepherd first, does he? He says, I'm a shepherd, and then he says, I'm, a, I'm the gate, and then eventually he says, I'm the good shepherd. And the thing is that they don't get it. The people he's speaking to, they don't get it. And so what happens is the passage that you're looking at today is actually three layers of explanation, okay? He tries three times to tell them who he is. And at the start, they're provoked, they're questioning. As Jesus starts, they are confused. And at the end, some of them even reject him. So the question is today, as you hear of it again, right? And I've no doubt that lots of the people in this room have heard the term that he is the good shepherd before, right? The question is today, how do you respond? Are you provoked and questioning? Are you confused? Are you at this moment in time in a position to reject him and say, 
no, I don't believe that's who you are. Because in a season where we're pushing into what it means to live life in light of the resurrection, what significance is there in a shepherd? Well, I want to say three things today. Because I think there's three things that are significant about having a shepherd in the world of living a life in light of the resurrection. And the first one is this, it's place. It's place. Lots of mornings in our house, Ellen and I get up, we do breakfast together, and after that we watch Planet Earth, right? That's kind of our little thing. She eats her Cheerios or Shreddies or whatever, and I sit beside her like dazed, drinking black coffee and watching Planet Earth. That's kind of our little thing. And uh, I'm sure lots of you have watched uh, Planet Earth too, but have you seen the scene with the penguins, right? You know the one where they basically get like smashed into the rocks at about 100 miles an hour? Like it's just like penguin suicide again and again and again, right? That's incredible enough as it is but these penguins eventually get themselves up onto like the shore and they like do their wee penguin amble right and they're like walking up into the colony okay that was a pretty good penguin impression right and when they get there okay there are millions of them right so the penguins eventually get up there they're kind of battered they've just been through like a massive ordeal they want to just get up and find their you know their family right they they are in pairs and they often have uh, little chicks or eggs so they're kind of trying to get up onto the shore to get to the eggs problem is when you get up there it's just like like a million penguins going ah, and like the noise on the show is absolutely mental it's just like ah, at about a thousand decibels the thing that amazes me every time I watch it is how on earth does that penguin find its other half how on earth does it hear it there's like a million of them and they all sound the same I don't know maybe we sound the same to penguins right but they all sound the same to me right when I'm watching it I'm just like how I mean, how, how, how would that penguin ever recognize that noise in a chorus of a million other squawks? How would, how would it do that? So much noise, so many voices, and yet they managed to pick out the one. It's astonishing, right? And in a sense, that's exactly what Jesus is saying today when he talks about his role as the shepherd. Jesus has to say that it's all about voice. It's all about turning to the one whose voice we are looking for. He's saying that in a chorus of a million different noises and a million different competing things that are being spoken over your life. There is a voice that you're searching for and you can find it if you can hear. And this is what Jesus says. Very truly, I tell you, Pharisees, anyone who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate but climbs in by some other way is a thief and a robber. The one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and he leads them out. When he's brought all his own, he goes on ahead of them and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. You know what, often we think about the whole shepherd-sheep analogy and we go straight to the idea of a shepherd in the field, don't we? That's kind of where, when I've started this today, you've been like, oh yeah, yeah, a shepherd in the field somewhere with like a crook, right? That's where you've went, right? But the reality about this story, as Jesus Jesus tells it, is there's like layers. He goes in a direction with it. He doesn't go straight to the Jesus who's in a field with sheep. That's not where the story starts. How do I know? Thanks for asking. Well, he gets there because the truth is in that time, as people, they owned a couple of sheep 
each. Unless you were a particularly wealthy person, you probably owned three sheep, okay? Now, the problem is you don't have lots of space if you're in that time. So what they tended to do was build like a pen, like a walled pen close to the rear of their houses normally. So if there was like a block of maybe 10 or 20 homes, there would be a pen somewhere close to those homes with a door. There was one way in, there was one way out. The walls were high, okay? It wasn't easy to get in and out of. So what happened was I would bring my three sheep and Lydia would bring her three sheep and Ross would bring his three sheep and all of us together would put our three sheep into the pen. That now means there's lots of sheep in the pen, okay? And then what happened after that was that the families would very often put a son or two daughters in charge of shepherding the sheep. But in order to get there, to get the sheep, they had to get the sheep out of that pen itself and take it into the country. So right now, as Jesus is telling it, they're in the village, right? They're not out in the middle of nowhere. He's talking about an analogy that's in the village, okay? And for this to work, okay, it needs two things. The first is this. You need to be the right person, okay? Because it's a gated community. It's a gated thing with a door. The only way you get in is if you're the right person, okay? These are tight communities. They know each other well. In other words, if you show up and you're not one of the people who own sheep, you ain't getting in, right? So there's one way in, there's one way out. You have to be the right person to get in and you have to come in the right way. When we were growing up, we lived in the country, in the middle of nowhere, and then we moved to Belfast. And I think I told some of our church about this before, but when we arrived, we brought a dog with us. Susie was kind of a bit mad. She was like a border collie. She was also used to the country, where she used to run wild all around the place. And then we arrived in Belfast. It was like built up. We just had a driveway. Susie didn't take it that well, okay? And she was fiercely territorial, as like most collies, if you've ever owned a collie, they tend to be very territorial. And one day, we're like in the back garden, this little guy from down our street, Gavin Miguel arrives to come and call for my brother and I and he just does what anybody else does he jumps over the gate critical mistake when you got a collie that's overprotective what happened next was Susie bolts for Gavin who is now running as fast as he possibly can at which point he leaps to get over the gate and the eternal line that's played over in our house is oh my bum Susie bit my bum right so he's like he nearly got there like he's just getting over and Susie nails him right problem was he came in the wrong way. It was a territorial dog. He came in the wrong way. He jumped over the fence. The dog thought, who's this guy? He's just jumped over the fence. He hasn't been given permission. Susie runs and, and bites him. Nip, nips him, right? I mean, it wasn't that bad. Nipped him, okay? But he didn't come in the right way. Jesus is saying, you'll know the shepherd because he'll come in the right way. The way that Jesus did, fulfilling prophecy after prophecy after prophecy. He was everything that was promised. You know what? Sometimes in life you're in situations with people and they'll be sharing about stuff or they'll be challenging you about some stuff or you may even be listening to a talk or a YouTube video or whatever online and you'll be listening to stuff and something inside you just does not sit well as you listen to it. Very often I feel that's because it hasn't come in the right way. It's like coming in the side. It hasn't come in the right way. And in a world full of competing worldviews and faiths and cultures and opinions and lifestyles and all of that sort of stuff. You know, I hear all the time uh, from parents whenever their kids go to uni, oh, you know, it's all the, they'll be opened up to all these worldviews and all of this stuff now. It's going to be really difficult for them. If you have one of these in your pocket today, you're just as wide open as any student has ever been in their lifetime. 
And the point is that there will be lots of voices competing for your life and some of them won't come in the right way. Jesus says you'll know the shepherd because he'll come in the right way. But secondly, the other thing that you'll need is that the sheep will need to know their voice. Your shepherd, you arrive at the gate, somebody lets you in, great. Now how do you get your three sheep out, right? Because they don't know your voice and you're like, sheep, you know, I don't know. What do you call it? Come around. Isn't that what they say? I don't know. They have to call the sheep out, right? But if they know your voice, the sheep come, don't they? You've got to be the right person and they have to know your voice. He calls his own sheep by name and he leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes on ahead. And the sheep follow him because they know his voice. They know his voice. And life in light of the resurrection is about getting to know that voice. The voice that calls us out, right? And it's hugely important because we spend so much of our lives trying to figure out where we're going and what we're meant to do with ourselves. And Jesus is saying is that the shepherd doesn't drive his sheep, right? He's not that sort of shepherd. The passage doesn't say that. He's not the sort of guy who's running around with a great big stick or a club like beating and shouting and guldering at you to keep going. That's not the sort of shepherd that he is. He doesn't drive you. He doesn't push you. He's the sort of shepherd that goes on ahead. He's somewhere out ahead. He's been where you're going. He's been where you are. He's somewhere out ahead leading the way and calling you to follow. That's the sort of shepherd that he is. You know, we only ever find our place in him as we learn to know his voice. I live with a school teacher and I am constantly amazed by all of the little quirks and nuances that Joy picks up on in the life of the 27 or 28 kids that she teaches every single day. Like she gets to know their characters. She gets to know their likes and their dislikes. She gets to know what makes them tick. She gets to know what their instincts are. She gets to know when they're struggling. She gets to know when stuff is going on behind the scenes, even though they tell her that they're fine, even though they tell her that, no, there's nothing going on. She knows there's stuff going on. Why? Because she gets to know them as individuals. And she speaks to all 28 of them in different ways. She knows that if she speaks to this kid with like a challenge, that kid is like, can't do it, I'm out. Where she knows if she says the exact same thing to the other kid on the other side of the class, he's like, challenge accepted. And he's like straight in, right? Flying high academically. She gets to know them as individuals. And she speaks to them the same. The thing is, that's exactly what a shepherd does. That's exactly what a shepherd does. Gets to know us as individuals. But even more, he comes face to face with us as individuals. Just looking at the Gospels, right? Encounters with Jesus are always personal. When you look through the Gospels, they're always personal. What do I mean? Okay, I mean that he meets Nicodemus by night. He met the woman at the well of Samaria. He met the man at the pool of Bethesda. He met the man born blind. In each of these encounters, he meets them individually, personally, alone. In other Gospels, we read that as he walked through Jericho, he saw a little man in a tree and he called to him, Zacchaeus, come down. I'm scheduled to have lunch with you. He met Matthew at the customs table and he told him, rise and follow me. Do you know something? Every believer who has ever come to Jesus has come alone. Every believer that has ever come to Jesus has come on their own. He never ever takes a group in at once. It's always just you and him alone. Because he knows you individually. 
He speaks to you individually, and it's only ever you and him alone. What you believe in the silence of your own heart about him is what makes a difference. That's where the transaction is done. He calls his own sheep by name. It's just you and him. And you know what? It's just you and him today. He knows you. He knows who you are. He knows what you're struggling through. He knows the joys. He knows the, de- the desires, the hopes, the dreams that are in your life. He knows the pains. He knows where you've been and he knows where you're going. He knows you. And he speaks. And it's his voice that we're bending our ears to hear. Do you hear him today? It's the voice of the shepherd that gives us our place. But secondly, this is about purpose. This is about place. And second, this is about purpose. So Jesus has tried to teach that he's a shepherd, okay? But the problem is that his audience, they they didn't understand. So he reframes again, all right? And this time the picture is that the shepherd has now led the sheep out of the village and into open country, okay? Because he uses a new picture. The picture is the gate. This is what it said, verse 7 through to 10. Therefore Jesus said again, very truly I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who have come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep have not listened to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and they'll find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. But I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. And you know Jesus has changed the picture here because he calls himself the gate. That's because what happens was eventually shepherds would leave the village. They would go out to pasture. That's where the sheep want to be. That's where they feed, all of that stuff. So they would need to probably go quite far. And when they went out very often, they would have to spend several days out in fields. So they would be sleeping in the fields overnight. So around the countryside, there would be dotted these kind of like pens. They were not like the ones in the village. They were sort of akin to like, you know, the Morn wall. Not really the Morn wall, but walls you would see in the Morn's kind of stone walls. They're a bit kind of, they're not really like Fort Knox really, right? Okay, but they would be out there. They would sort of form a boundary. And the thing was, they had a large opening then so that the sheep could come in and go out. That's great until you need to sleep and until you need the sheep to sleep. And then the problem is you just have a great big gateway that they can go out of. And so what did a shepherd do? A shepherd lay in the gate. A shepherd became the gate. And Jesus says, I am the gate. In other words, he's the one who is our protection. He is our safety. He's the one who sets the boundaries in our life. Because he sits in the place where we might come and go, where we do whatever. Jesus lies across the door. He becomes the door himself. And as he's doing it, Jesus is saying two things. He's saying that he's the only access to God the Father, right through him. The only way in and out of the pen, right through him. God for all the world in that time who may have seemed distant all of a sudden was accessible right through him. But also he's saying that he's the way to life, right? The passage said, and the gate, whoever enters through me will be saved. They'll come in, they'll go out, and they'll find pasture. Now that is kind of different to how you would use that phrase now. Now, normally, you know, if someone is retiring or they're getting on in life, someone would say, oh, we're sending them out to pasture, right? It's not a, it's usually a derogatory term that I would use for something like my dad, right? But, you know, that's not what they're getting at here. Getting out to pasture is the good things. If you're a sheep, that's where you want to be, right? You don't want to be in a pen. You want to be out in pasture. Pasture. pasture is a good thing and coming in and out, okay? That spoke to the culture of the time. It was a well-known Hebrew phrase. To be able to come in and go out freely was the Jewish way of describing a life that is absolutely secure and safe. 
So coming in and going out is a good thing. When people can go up, come in and go out without fear, it means their country's at peace. It means that the forces of law and order are supreme and that they enjoy perfect security, right? If you can come and go as you please, you're safe. The country's peaceful. This is what William Barclay, a commentator, says. The leader of a nation is to be the one who can bring them out and lead them in. The person who is obedient to God is said to be blessed when he comes in and blessed going out. The psalmist is certain that God will keep him in his going out and in his coming in. Once anyone discovers through Jesus what God is like, a new sense of safety and security enters into life. If life is known to be in the hands of a God like that, then worries and fears are gone. If your life's in the hands of someone like that, then worries and fears are gone. This is life through the gate. Jesus is saying you've got to live life through the gate. It's a life of peace and security that's safe and it has purpose and direction. You know, we live in a world which is obsessed with living my best life, right? You hear that said all the time. You know, somebody's, you know, they just made a mess of their kitchen. It's a disaster zone, but they're like in front of the TV with a takeaway. Hashtag my best life, right? That's what you say all the time, you know? We're obsessed with it. And yet the outworking of that obsession are so clearly written all over the world in which we live. Worry, anger, depression, eating disorders, social anxiety, a desperate longing for acceptance. that talks as if life is found in endless options of doing and being what you want. And Jesus said life is found in choices. There's no life in options, but there's life in choices. In choosing to hear his voice, in choosing a life through the gate. The writer of the Hebrews called it the living way. Life through the gate is the living way. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They'll come in, they'll go out, they'll find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. You know, life through the gate is life to the full. You know, the words to the full, okay? They are literally translated as superabundance, okay? That's what it means, uh, taking the original language. And you know, I sometimes feel that that is what it is to be the parent of a small child, right? Is to be subject to a superabundance, right? That is how I feel, like they are excited endlessly. We were driving with Elle the other day. We're just, I don't know where we're going, like Tesco or something. And she starts screaming in the back seat. And then she's like, it's a cat. I'm like, a cat is not that exciting, right? And she's like, oh, daddy, daddy, it's a cat, daddy, daddy, it's a cat. I'm like, what is this? Because she's endlessly excited. She has more energy than us. A small child will keep you awake half the night, and yet they're up at five o'clock in the morning, peeling your eyes open themselves, ready to come and greet the day. They implode when things go wrong and tantrum. They squeal with delight more often than you can count. They're more, you are probably more tired than you ever ever have been. You're probably skint too. Your house is almost certainly a disaster zone. And the truth is that the life of a parent is one who's given up so much for this little wrecking ball of life. Because that's what they are, aren't they? They're a wrecking ball of life. I don't just need to say that on behalf of parents, grandparents, we know you're doing a shift too. You are also subject to the wrecking balls of life, right? Because that's what they do. Because all that you've given, sacrificed and chosen has been replaced with what? It's been replaced with life, hasn't it? All of a sudden you don't mind the mess. You don't mind being skint. You don't mind being tired. 
because of the life that has rushed in, a super abundance of life. It's the sort of life that happens to you, doesn't it? It's like there's nothing you can do about it. It's just life that happens to you. And that's what life through the gate is. That's what Jesus says. He says the living life through the gate is a life far more than you've known. It's life that happens to you. Where a God who knows you, really knows you, calls you ever forward. When you set down your striving, when you abandon your way for abundance through the gate, it's from abandoning to abundance. That's what it means to have purpose. Life that happens to you. You know, in 2008, I was talking about this with noobs in the office the other day. In 2008, I was working in a tile shop, right? And I hated it, right? Now, if you work in a tile shop and you love it, I'm not having a go at tile shop workers. Maybe it's your dream job. Personally, I hated it. My big sister came to visit me one day. I think she thought I was mortally depressed. In fact, it was one of those ones where I think she phoned my mom the second she went out the front door, right? Working in a tile shop was just not what I wanted to do with my life. And if you told me that in 2018, well, it's now 2019, but in 2019, I would have been here and this church would have happened and we would have got to have been part of this thing happening in the city center. I would never have believed believed you. We could never have done this. We could never have planned this. We could never have rolled this out with our lives. It's something Jesus did. When you start living through the gate, there's like a super abundance of life, stuff that happens to you. The shepherd means place and purpose. And finally, the shepherd means price. Place and purpose and price. If you have played football for any length of time, right, particularly if you're partial to like a Tuesday night football, okay, you know they are like five or six a side job on a Tuesday night, right, where basically it's full of people who are not good enough to play on Saturdays anymore. They now play on Tuesday nights. The end goal is normally that anyone over 40 kicks 10 bells out of anyone who's approximately 20 and runs faster than them, right? That's what happens at Tuesday night. I'm really selling it to you now. You're all desperate to play, right? But that's what happens at Tuesday night football. Now, if you've played Tuesday Tuesday night football for any length of time, okay, there's nearly always somebody who shows up, and the best word I could use to describe them is they're a bit of a liability, right? You know that player, they're just a bit of a liability, like their touch is dreadful, like when they shoot, it's closer to Rosette than the top corner, which is what they were aiming for, the sort of person that you volunteer to do nets, and you just hope they stay in nets the whole night, right? That sort of player. Now, my experience of that sort of player playing on Tuesday nights is that they always seem to be the sort of person who's prone to I meant it moments, right? Whereby, like, for example, they will eventually get their golden moment. They are bombing it down the right wing. They have clearly meant to cross it and it has flown into the top corner and forevermore they're like, meant it. And you're like, you never meant it. I've been watching you shoot every week for like months. You couldn't have scored that in a million years. And there'll be like, you know, WhatsApp groups. They'll be like telling everyone, you all seen the goal I scored. Meant it, right? And it's like that sort of thing. I meant it. Ridiculous claim, right? But the thing is, Jesus is making a claim far more ridiculous than any I meant it ever right here. Because it is an astonishing thing, a truly astonishing thing to claim that death was your choice and so too was your resurrection. It is an astonishing thing. The reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my father. That is an astonishing claim, right? I had authority to lay it down. I've got authority to take it back up. That is an astonishing claim. But yet Jesus doesn't just claim it. 
we know that life living on this side of the resurrection means that we know that he did it too, that he meant it when he said it, and that he did it. And love was the key. Love is what made it happen. Love made a way where we thought, where all the world thought that there was only death on the cross. As he hangs on the cross, as he's taken down, as he's placed in a tomb, there's nobody in the world at that moment that thought anything other than death had just happened and anything other than death was going to be the, was going to be the outcome. Yet love found a way. Love gave us our place. Love unlocks our purpose. And love came at a great price. This is what it says in verse 11. I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hard hand is not the shepherd and doesn't own the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep. He runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he's a hard hand and he cares nothing for the sheep. Jesus is the good shepherd. The question is what makes him good? The answer is his love does. What makes him good is his love. One cultural commentator I read said that the difference between a hard hand where they only did the work for the money and they ran when it got sketchy and the true shepherd was that the true shepherd was often the children of the family who owned the sheep. In other words, they were born to it. This was their sheep, right? They weren't just being paid to stand around there. It was their sheep. It mattered that they went through with it. They're born to it. It wasn't about payment or reward. It's in their blood, and they chose it every single day. And so it was with Jesus. So it was with Jesus. He always had the whole world. Every single one of us in here, and every single one of us out there in his sights and living Living than the living way was the way of the cross. Life meant death. Love meant death. And he was born to it. He was born to it. And that life, you know, that choice of the cross, it meant that life and faith came to the very corners of the empire, right? From that moment that Jesus is resurrected and the church is birthed and all of the stuff that happens after that, life comes to the four corners of the empire, to the parts that were unthinkable, to the parts that seemed too far, to the parts that they said they will never accept faith. It did. They have. Today, they have. And what that means for us is that life still comes to the corners of our hearts. Life can still come to the corners of your heart, to the parts of you that think I can never forgive, to the parts of you think that that hurt too much, to the parts of you that think life hasn't worked out the way I hoped it would, to the parts of you that are hard, to the parts of you that are dry, to the parts of you that are holding on for something else, to the parts of us that feel unthinkable. Love can still come to those parts of your heart because we're living in light of the resurrection. You know what? I see this phrase fly postered up around Belfast all the time. I walk to get lunch quite often and I walk past this sign all the time, right? Self-worth is self-determined. And it sounds great, right? But you know what? It's a lie. It's a lie. And I kind of get what it's saying, right? Don't let your worth be determined by other people or society or culture, right? I kind of get what it's saying. But you know what? It's a lie, You know, the word good in the phrase, the good shepherd, it means so much more than just good as we normally use it. The word is kalos, right? It's this word, kalos. And it's probably better translated as nobility, as beauty, as attractiveness, or probably the best word is worth. Worth. 
The good shepherd is the one who gives worth. I want to say to you today that your worth is not self-determined. Your worth is not self-determined. Because if it is all of the doubt and the worry and the self-loathing and the self-deprecating and all of the stuff that you carry in your life, the narratives that you tell yourselves, all of the longing for love, all of the desperation for acceptance, all of the things that we feel we need to be and do and say and have that our culture tells us give us our worth, you don't need those. Those are not what define your worth. Because if it's all about how you define your worth, I don't know about you, but pretty soon on your worst days or on some day, you're going to feel like I'm pretty worthless, right? Self-worth is not self-determined. Self-worth is predetermined. Your worth is predetermined. It's Jesus-determined. All of that that we feel about ourselves comes together to make us feel and believe that we're worthless, and yet Jesus chose you. Jesus chose to suffer. He chose to die for you. He knows you intimately and he chooses you still. He knows your longing and he chooses you still. He knows where you've been. He knows where you are. He knows what you doubt and you worry and you struggle to believe and yet he chooses you still. You know, this is not some childhood image of Jesus, you know, the happy shepherd in a field and like a flowery meadow with butterflies around him on a beautiful spring day, right? That's not the image here. It's way deeper than that. This is kingdom stuff. This is wrestling control of your heart stuff. This is peeling the fingers of your hand that's holding on so tightly, so tightly to yourself. It's peeling them back. It's wrestling control and saying, Jesus, you're the one who says what I'm worth. Because this is the same shepherd who knows you when the lights are off and the music stops. And still like a shepherd goes ahead and he calls you to come on, follow me. I've went ahead, I know what you're feeling. I know the worries in your heart and in your life, but I've gone ahead, come on, follow me. The same shepherd who makes a way and a purpose and who paid a price that only his love could pay. You have worth. And it's not because you say so. It's because he said so. And he didn't just say so. He did enough to make a way. Your worth is not self-determined. It's predetermined.